Section 4 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator Unknown. Section 4. Parts 39 to 52. 39. The world has never been created. Matter moves of itself. We are gravely and repeatedly told that there is no effect without a cause, that the world did not make itself. But the universe is a cause, it is not an effect, it is not a work. It has not been made because it is impossible that it should have been made. The world has always been, its existence is necessary, it is its own cause. Nature, whose essence is visibly to act and produce, requires not, to discharge her functions, an invisible mover, much more unknown than herself. Matter moves by its own energy, by a necessary consequence of its heterogeneity. The diversity of motion, or modes of mutual action, constitutes alone the diversity of matter. We distinguish beings from one another only by the different impressions or motions which they communicate to our organs. 40. The world has never been created. Matter moves of itself. You see that all is action in nature, and yet pretend that nature, by itself, is dead and without power. You imagine that this all, essentially acting, needs a mover. What then is this mover? It is a spirit, a being absolutely incomprehensible and contradictory. Acknowledge, then, that matter acts of itself, and cease to reason of your spiritual mover, who has nothing that is requisite to put it in action. Return from your useless excursions. Enter again into a real world. Keep to second causes and leave to divines their first cause, of which nature has no need to produce all the effects you observe in the world. 41. Motion is essential to matter, no spiritual mover. It can be only by the diversity of impressions and effects, which bodies make upon us, that we feel them, that we have perceptions and ideas of them, that we distinguish one from another, that we assign them properties. Now, to see or feel an object, the object must act upon our organs. This object cannot act upon us without exciting some motion in us. It cannot excite motion in us if it not be in motion itself. At the instant I see an object, my eyes are struck by it. I can have no conception of light and vision without motion communicated to my eye from the luminous, extended, colored body. At the instant I smell something, my sense is irritated or put in motion by the parts that exhale from the odiferous body. At the moment I hear a sound, the tympanum of my ear is struck by the air, put in motion by a sonorous body which would not act if it were not in motion itself. Whence it evidently follows that without motion I can neither feel, see, distinguish, compare, judge, 
nor occupy my thoughts upon any subject whatever. We are taught that the essence of a thing is that from which all its properties flow. Now it is evident that all the properties of bodies, of which we have ideas, are owing to motion, which alone informs us of their existence and gives us the first conceptions of them. I cannot be informed of my own existence, but by the motions I experience in myself. I am therefore forced to conclude that motion is as essential to matter as extension, and that matter cannot be conceived without it. Should any person deny that motion is essential and necessary to matter, they cannot at least help acknowledge that bodies, which seem dead and inert, produce motion of themselves when placed in a fit situation to act upon one another. For instance, phosphorus, when exposed to the air, immediately takes fire. Meal and water, when mixed, ferment. Thus dead matter begets motion of itself. Matter has then the power of self-motion, and nature, to act, has no need of a mover, whose pretended essence would hinder him from acting. 42. The existence of man does not prove the existence of God. Whence comes man? What is his origin? Did the first man spring, ready formed, from the dust of the earth? Man appears, like all other beings, a production of nature. Whence came the first stones, the first trees, the first lions, the first elephants, the first ants, the first acorns? We are incessantly told to acknowledge and revere the hand of God, of an infinitely wise, intelligent, and powerful maker, in so wonderful a work as the human machine. I readily confess that the human machine appears to me surprising. But as man exists in nature, I am not authorized to say that his formation is above the power of nature. But I can much less conceive of this formation when, to explain it, I am told that a pure spirit who has neither eyes, feet, hands, head, lungs, mouth, nor breath, made man by taking a little clay and breathing upon it. We laugh at the savage inhabitants of Paraguay for calling themselves the descendants of the moon. The divines of Europe call themselves the descendants or the creation of a pure spirit. Is this pretension any more rational? Man is intelligent, thence it is inferred that he can be the work only of an intelligent being, and not of a nature which is void of intelligence. Although nothing is more rare than to see man make use of this intelligence, of which he seems so proud, I will grant that he is intelligent, that his wants develop this faculty, that society especially contributes to cultivate it but I see nothing in the human machine and in the intelligence with which it is endued that announces very precisely the infinite intelligence of the maker to whom it is ascribed. I see that this admirable machine is liable to be deranged. I see that his wonderful intelligence is then disordered and sometimes totally disappears. 
I infer that human intelligence depends upon a certain disposition of the material organs of the body, and that we cannot infer the intelligence of God any more from the intelligence of man than from his materiality. All that we can infer from it is that God is material. The intelligence of man no more proves the intelligence of God than the malice of man proves the malice of that God, who is the pretended maker of man. In spite of all the arguments of divines, God will always be a cause contradicted by its effects, or of which it is impossible to judge by its works. We shall always see evil, imperfection, and folly result from such a cause that is said to be full of goodness, perfection, and wisdom. 43. Neither man nor the universe are the effects of chance. What, you will say, is intelligent man, is the universe, and all it contains, the effect of chance? No, I repeat it. The universe is not an effect. It is the cause of all effects. Every being it contains is the necessary effect of this cause, which sometimes shows us its manner of acting, but generally conceals its operations. Men use the word chance to hide their ignorance of true causes, which, though not understood, act not less according to certain laws. There is no effect without a cause. Nature is a word used to denote the immense assemblage of beings, various matter, infinite combinations, and diversified motions that we behold. All bodies, organized or unorganized, are necessary effects of certain causes. Nothing in nature can happen by chance. Everything is subject to fixed laws. These laws are only the necessary connection of certain effects with their causes. One atom of matter cannot meet another by chance. This meeting is the effect of permanent laws which cause every being necessarily to act as it does and hinder it from acting otherwise in given circumstances. To talk of the fortuitous concourse of atoms or to attribute some effects to chance, is merely saying that we are ignorant of the laws by which bodies act, meet, combine, or separate. Those who are unacquainted with nature, the properties of beings, and the effects which must necessarily result from the concurrence of certain causes, think that everything takes place by chance. It is not chance, that has placed the sun in the center of our planetary system. It is by its own essence that the substance of which it is composed must occupy that place and thence be diffused. 44. Order of the universe does not prove the existence of a god. The worshippers of a god find, in the order of the universe, an invincible proof of the existence of an intelligent and wise being who governs it. But this order is nothing but a series of movements necessarily produced by causes or circumstances which are sometimes favorable and sometimes hurtful to us. We approve of some and complain of others. 
nature uniformly follows the same round, that is, the same causes produce the same effects, as long as their action is not disturbed by other causes, which force them to produce different effects. When the operation of causes, whose effects we experience, is interrupted by causes which, though unknown, are not the less natural and necessary, we are confounded. We cry out, A miracle! and attribute it to a cause much more unknown than any of those acting before our eyes. The universe is always in order. It cannot be in disorder. It is our machine that suffers when we complain of disorder. The bodies, causes, and beings which this world contains necessarily act in the manner in which we see them act, whether we approve or disapprove of their effects. Earthquakes, volcanoes, inundations, pestilences, and famines are effects as necessary or as much in the order of nature as the fall of heavy bodies, the courses of rivers, the periodical motions of the seas, the blowing of the winds, the fruitful rains, and the favorable effects for which men praise God and thank Him for His goodness. To be astonished that a certain order reigns in the world is to be surprised that the same causes constantly produce the same effects. To be shocked at disorder is to forget that when things change or are interrupted in their actions, the effects can no longer be the same. To wonder at the order of nature is to wonder that anything can exist. It is to be surprised at anyone's own existence. What is order to one being is disorder to another. All wicked beings find that everything is in order when they can with impunity put everything in disorder. They find, on the contrary, that everything is in disorder when they are disturbed in the exercise of their wickedness. 45. Order of the universe does not prove the existence of a god. Upon supposition that God is the author and mover of nature, there could be no disorder with respect to him. Would not all the causes that he should have made necessarily act according to the properties, essences, and impulses given them? If God should change the ordinary course of nature, he would not be immutable. If the order of the universe, in which man thinks he sees the most convincing proof of the existence, intelligence, power, and goodness of God, should happen to contradict itself, one might suspect his existence, or, at least, accuse him of inconsistency, impotence, want of foresight, and wisdom in the arrangement of things. One would have a right to accuse him of an oversight in the choice of the agents and instruments which he makes, prepares, and puts in action. In short, if the order of nature proves the power and intelligence of the deity, disorder must prove his weakness, instability, and irrationality. You say that God is omnipresent, that he fills the universe with his immensity, that nothing is done without him, that matter could not act without his agency. But in this case you admit that your God is the author of disorder. 
that it is he who deranges nature, that he is the father of confusion, that he is in man and moves him at the moment he sins. If God is everywhere, he is in me, he acts with me, he is deceived with me, he offends God with me, and combats with me the existence of God. Oh, theologians, you never understand yourselves when you speak of God. 46. Absurd to adore a divine intelligence. In order to have what we call intelligence, it is necessary to have ideas, thoughts, and wishes. To have ideas, thoughts, and wishes, it is necessary to have organs. To have organs, it is necessary to have a body. To act upon bodies, it is necessary to have a body. To experience disorder, it is necessary to be capable of suffering. Whence it evidently follows that a pure spirit can neither be intelligent nor affected by what passes in the universe. Divine intelligence, ideas, and views have, you say, nothing common with those of men. Very well. How then can men judge, right or wrong, of these views, reason upon these ideas, or admire this intelligence? This would be to judge, admire, and adore that of which we can have no ideas. To adore the profound views of divine wisdom, is it not to adore that of which we cannot possibly judge? To admire these views, is it not to admire without knowing why? Admiration is always the daughter of ignorance. Men admire and adore only what they do not comprehend. 47. Qualities given God contrary to the essence attributed to him. All those qualities ascribed to God are totally incompatible with a being who, by his very essence, is void of all analogy with human beings. It is true the divines imagine they extricate themselves from this difficulty by exaggerating the human qualities attributed to the divinity. They enlarge them to infinity, where they cease to understand themselves. What results from this combination of man with God? A mere chimera of which, if anything be affirmed, the phantom, combined with so much pains, instantly vanishes. Dante, in his poem upon Paradise, relates that the deity appeared to him under the figure of three circles, forming an iris, whose lively colors generated each other, but that looking steadily upon the dazzling light, he saw only his own figure. While adoring God, it is himself that man adores. 48 qualities given God contrary to the essence attributed to him. Ought not the least reflection suffice to prove that God can have none of the human qualities, all ties, virtues, or perfections? Our virtues and perfections are consequences of the modifications of our passions. But has God passions as we have? Again, 
our good qualities consists in our dispositions toward the beings with whom we live in society. God, according to you, is an insulated being. God has no equals, no fellow beings. God does not live in society. He wants the assistance of no one. He enjoys an unchangeable felicity. Admit, then, according to your own principles, that God cannot have what we call virtues, and that man cannot be virtuous with respect to him. 49. Absurd to say that the human race is the object of the universe. Man, wrapped up in his own merit, imagines the human race to be the sole object of God in creating the universe. Upon what does he found this flattering opinion? We are told that man is the only being endued with intelligence, which enables him to know the deity and to render him homage. We are assured that God made the world only for his own glory, and that it was necessary that the human species should come into this plan, that there might be someone to admire his works and glorify him for them. But according to these suppositions, has not God evidently missed his object? First, man, according to yourselves, will always labor under the completest impossibility of knowing his God, and the most invincible ignorance of his divine essence. Secondly, a being who has no equal cannot be susceptible of glory, for glory can result only from the comparison of one's own excellence with that of others. Thirdly, if God be infinitely happy, if he be self-sufficient, what need has he of the homage of his feeble creatures? Fourthly, God, notwithstanding all his endeavors, is not glorified, but, on the contrary, all the religions in the world represent him as perpetually offended. Their sole object is to reconcile sinful, ungrateful, rebellious man with his angry God. 50. God is not made for man, nor man for God. If God be infinite, he has much less relation with man than man with ants. Would the ants reason pertinently concerning the intentions, desires, and projects of the gardener? Could they justly imagine that a park was planted for them alone by an ostentatious monarch, and that the sole object of his goodness was to furnish them with a superb residence? But according to theology, man is, with respect to God, far below what the vilest insect is to man. Thus, by theology itself, which is wholly devoted to the attributes and views of the divinity, theology appears a complete folly. 51. Untrue that the object of the universe was to render man happy. We are told that in the formation of the universe, God's only object was the happiness of man. But in a world made purposely for him, and governed by an omnipotent God, is man in reality very happy? Are his enjoyments durable? Are not his pleasures mixed with pains? Are many persons satisfied with their fate? 
Is not man continually the victim of physical and moral evils? Is not the human machine, which is represented as a masterpiece of the Creator's skill, liable to derangement in a thousand ways? Should we be surprised at the workmanship of a mechanic who should show us a complex machine ready to stop every moment and which, in a short time, would break in pieces of itself? 52. What is called providence is a word without meaning. The generous care displayed by the deity in providing for the wants and watching over the happiness of his beloved creatures is called providence. But when we open our eyes, we find that God provides nothing. Providence sleeps over the greater part of the inhabitants of this world. For a very small number of men who are supposed to be happy, what an immense multitude groan under oppression and languish in misery. Are not nations forced to deprive themselves of bread to administer to the extravagances of a few gloomy tyrants who are no happier than their oppressed slaves? At the same time that our divines emphatically expatiate upon the goodness of providence while they exhort us to repose our confidence in her, do we not hear them, at the sight of unforeseen catastrophes, exclaim that providence sports with the vain projects of man, that she frustrates their designs, that she laughs at their efforts, that profound wisdom delights to bewilder the minds of mortals? But shall we put confidence in a malignant providence who laughs at and sports with mankind? How will one admire the unknown ways of a hidden wisdom whose manner of acting is inexplicable? Judge of it by effects, you will say. We do, and find that these effects are sometimes useful and sometimes hurtful. Men think they justify providence by saying that in this world there is much more good than evil to every individual of mankind. Supposing the good we enjoy from providence is to the evil as a hundred to ten, will it not still follow that for a hundred degrees of goodness Providence possesses ten of malignity, which is incompatible with the supposed perfection of the divine nature. Almost all books are filled with the most flattering praises of Providence, whose attentive care is highly extolled. It would seem as if man, to live happily here below, needed not his own exertions. Yet without his own labor, man could subsist hardly a day. To live he is obliged to sweat, toil, hunt, fish, and labor without intermission. Without these second causes, the first cause, at least in most countries, would provide for none of our wants. In all parts of the globe we see savage and civilized man in a perpetual struggle with providence. He is necessitated to ward off the strokes directed against him by providence in hurricanes, tempests, frosts, hailstorms, inundations, droughts, and the various accidents which so often render useless all his labors. In a word, 
we see man continually occupied in guarding against the ill offices of that providence which is supposed to be attentive to his happiness. A bigot admired divine providence for wisely ordering rivers to pass through those places where men have built large cities. Is not this man's reasoning as rational as that of many learned men who incessantly talk of final causes, or who pretend that they clearly perceive the beneficent views of God in the formation of all things? End of section 4 Recording by Roger Moline